Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7. And today we are once again looking at this final section of the Sermon on the Mount, and it has been called one of the most sobering parts of this entire sermon. This is the conclusion of a sermon in which Jesus gave a clarion call for righteousness. What he was doing was exposing the self-righteous attitude of the religious leaders, and Jesus gave principles for life in his kingdom. Jesus taught that righteousness cannot come from a self-dependent, sinful heart. It has to come from a heart that has been changed, one that has been radically altered by divine action. On the first part of the sermon, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus set the tone for what he was going to teach on. And the very first sentence says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven. And that is a person who recognizes that he is a sinner. There's nothing in him that commends him to God. He's bankrupt of all spiritual good. He cries out to God to give him righteousness and to give him a pure heart because he wants to be fit to live in God's kingdom. And that same theme is expanded on by the Apostle Paul when he wrote in Romans, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so Jesus showed the people that they had reached the pinnacle of, of self-righteousness. And actually the scribes and the Pharisees had gone up the ladder, as far up the ladder of man-made righteousness as they could possibly go, and yet they were still far short of what God demanded. And so the righteousness that they needed was one that could be obtained only by faith. And so they had nowhere else to go but to turn to Jesus, because Jesus is true righteousness. He is the perfection of God. And so the whole force of his arguments is to turn people away from that fouled up, polluted system that they had been living under. The scribes and Pharisees uh, didn't teach the real road to eternal life, but Jesus showed them and he gave them a series of warnings here in the last part of chapter 7. When you come down to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he gave a series of warnings for everyone who hears to examine your confession to see if you are actually in the in the faith? Are you just professing that you know Christ and are you really in possession of eternal life? Now sitting before him was a multitude that was intrigued with his words. They listened very intently to what he was saying. They were willing to go along with him. They knew that there was something that was different about him. And he ended this sermon, or when he had ended it, They were amazed at his teaching, the authority that he had, that he could preach in such a way. And yet among all those people that were intrigued by what he said, those that were interested in the teachings that he gave, those who called him Lord, yet there were only a few of them that actually entered into the kingdom of God. Our text verses are verses 21 through 23, Matthew chapter 7. Let's stand together and read that. Matthew 7 verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. 
Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts today. Use your word to convict souls. Lord, I pray that Christians will be drawn closer to you. May our assurance become real by examining the proper things that you would have us to examine. And Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would very clearly understand there are consequences to unbelief. Lord, we pray that you would bless in this message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to notice the repetition of the word Lord. Lord, Lord. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord. And we're in part number two of this message. And let me just review for a moment what we talked about last week. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we call that the fervent proposition. This is the burning, penetrating proposition. Luke records a similar statement by saying, and why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Now the repetition of the word Lord here is to show that these people had not simply acknowledged that Jesus was a good teacher. If they had said Lord only once, then that would imply that they had accepted him as a rabbi, that he was a gifted teacher, that he did have some thought-worthy opinions, but not really much more than that. The second Lord, when they repeat this, is an admission that they do see something more in him, yet he was a gifted teacher, that's true. He was unlike anyone that they had ever heard before. The second Lord means that they saw him as God. They said, yes, you are Jehovah God. You are the God of the Old Testament. We are committed to you. We are devoted to you. We are living in your kingdom. We will live under your rule. And to those, Jesus said, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? You claim that I am God, you claim me as God, and you don't do, as it says in our text, the will of my Father which is in heaven. And that is the sobering question, that is the fervent proposition. And folks, this is where the rubber meets the road in this church. Because what happens now is that you are placed right down into the middle of this crowd... And you are listening to Jesus, and he's asking you a question. Why do you call me Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? Now, those who say and those who don't do are those that have a verbal commitment without a functional commitment. And we looked at several categories of these types of professors. Some of them are Christmas, Easter, and Mother's Day Christians. They say that they're Christians, but just a little dose of Christianity, a little dose of the teachings of Christ, that at one time, two times, three times a year, maybe that's good enough for them. And if you ask them, do you believe in Christ? And do you know that you're saved? Hardly a one of them would ever hesitate. They would say, yes, of course I'm a Christian. But their commitment is really not much deeper than I am a Christian because I'm not a Muslim. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm not an agnostic. I'm not an atheist. I'm a Christian. These are people who have a verbal commitment, but no functional one. There are also people that do show up on a fairly regular basis to church, and they know certain things about the church. They've learned things. They've been to Sunday school. They know a catechism. They can recite a creed or two. And they show up for church because that's what Christians do. Christians go to church, but there's not much more in them than just a cold, dead formalism. Their Christianity doesn't really permeate their daily activities. Christianity, their faith, that's a private thing. So we don't talk about things like that in public. 
I mean, polite company, we don't talk about God, we don't talk about our faith. Then there are others that just fake it. They say they're Christians, but they know that they aren't. And for whatever reason, they try to keep up the pretense. They've been going to church for so long, and they've had jobs in the church for so long, that if they quit now, all that would mean is that somebody would come and visit them and ask them what happened. They don't want that to go on, so they know they're not real. They're just keeping up the pretense, and they have to act the part. Now, those are three types of Christians, Christmas, Easter Christians, the liturgical ones, the faking ones, and those are a part of nearly every community. I mean, you'll find those types anywhere that you go. But the fourth group, the fourth group is the most disconcerting to the majority of people that would be here today. In verses 15 through 20, Jesus warned about false prophets. And he said, there are preachers that are going to deceive you. You have to watch out for them because what they will do is they will obscure the true way to eternal life. There are people that preach lies, they look good, they sound good, but they're deceptive. And he said in those verses that they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And he warned you, beware of them, watch out for that deception. But in these verses, 21 through 23, Jesus has moved beyond that type of deception to another type. And this one is the most dangerous, and this is self-deception. And this is the one where you fool yourself that you are a Christian. You believe that you're a Christian. You are fully convinced that you are a Christian. But you're actually self-deceived. And so the fourth group is worse. These are the ones that are least likely to be alarmed. They're the hardest sometimes even to reach. These are what we call faith-in-faith Christians. They have faith in the fact that they have professed faith. I mean, they, they did something at one time. They, they uh, walked an aisle. They made a profession of faith. They got baptized. And these are the kinds of people that have done many, many wonderful works. But when they hear a message like this, they tune it out because they think, I don't need this. I've already done those things, and so I don't need to examine myself. I don't need to look deep inside and see if my faith is real. See, they've heard so much preaching about eternal security, and they've been told so often they could never lose their salvation that they don't think there's any worth to stop and examine it. They don't wait or look to see if that faith was ever correctly placed in the first place. The preacher said, you're saved. Don't let anybody tell you that you're not. And so they look back on that profession. That's what they're counting on. The fact that they did something sometime or another. I did it. I walked the aisle. I I got baptized. I've been there. I've done that. So I know that I'm saved. And that is the crowd that Jesus is most concerned with. They said, Lord, Lord, we are committed to you. We know you. But deep down down inside where they never go to check, there was never really a relationship with the Lord. Now we're going to explore that a little bit more today. We're still dealing here mostly with verse number 21. And I want to show you some of the things that lead people to their false conclusions. Why do they think that they're saved when they're not? And we put this under the heading today, Head Knowledge Without Heart Knowledge. Head knowledge without heart knowledge. I was saved when I was seven years old. My father was a preacher, and he became a pastor of his first church just very shortly after I was born. The first public place that I was ever taken was to church, and my mom still has the little certificate that I was on, you know, has my name on the cradle roll of the South Broadway Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky. 
Now that might seem a little odd to you after my earlier preaching that a church would be called the Broadway, but it was the South Broadway Baptist Church. And shortly after that, my dad was called to pastor a little country church in which he diligently worked and that the Lord blessed the church, the church grew and that little country church became a glowing, vibrant church. And I was in that church until I was 10 years old. And when I was at the age of seven, I felt the Holy Spirit speaking to me. And I remember the day that my dad was preaching that I could not wait. He was preaching and I could not wait to go up and tell him. I was anxious to tell him, I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. And my dad was a very doctrinal preacher. Uh, Listening to him was like getting a seminary education. If you listened to him and you studied and you applied... In a few years, you would know a lot about the Bible. And I don't mean just Bible stories. I mean, you would learn doctrines from the Bible that Baptist churches hardly ever preach anymore because Baptists have learned a different way of preaching now. But I learned those things when I was young. And when I was young, I listened. I grew up and I listened. And so when I was 18 years old, I felt that the Lord was calling me to be involved in the teaching ministry of the church. And from that day, I started to accumulate a library. And I was still learning, and I began to add and add and add to that library. And I studied and I studied, and I'll even admit that I studied sometimes to the exclusion of my family. And I'll have to ask God to forgive me for that. But I did that. But of all the things that I've ever studied, this is the most perplexing problem that I've ever faced. I think it's one of the most serious issues that there is among Christians. How do you know that what is in your head has actually reached all the way down into your heart? And I think that's one of the fundamental teachings of this passage. There are many, many Christians, perhaps members of Berean Baptist Church, who are here not because of something that you have in your heart, but because of something that you have in your head. You have the knowledge of Christ. You can recite the right things. You affirm that Jesus died on the cross. You say that he died to save sinners. He died for you. You say that. You believe that he arose on the third day. You wholeheartedly affirm with all of your heart that Jesus is coming back. And you believe that when you die that you will go to heaven. And if you die before Jesus comes, if you die before Jesus comes back, you'll go to heaven. But if you don't, then you firmly believe that God will translate you, that when Jesus appears, that you'll be changed, you'll receive a glorified body, and you'll go up immediately to be with him in heaven. You affirm all that. You believe all of that. But it's stuck up here, and it hasn't really traveled that 18 inches to get down to your heart. Is that possible? Is it really possible that... You can affirm everything that I've said, just repeat it here, and still be lost. You know that's what's hidden in that second Lord? That's exactly what's hidden there. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. You see, the second Lord is admission to all that I've just said, and yet that person is still lost. I mean, how could that be? I mean, how do you get from Lord, Lord, in verse number 21, to the one who is in verse 23 that is told to depart? If you want to peek ahead a little bit to the next sermon, Jesus means depart to hell. So how do you get from the church pew to hell? Now, you see how 
the scripture is so perplexing? Do you understand that no matter what position that you have in the church, it's time for you to look inside and see if what you know in your head is really down in your heart? Now let's talk about that. What about those, or what's wrong with those who think that they know Christ, but they don't? Well, I think the first problem is that of a, de- of a deficient reception. The root of the problem goes back to the initial reception of what you heard. Now, before I go any further, I think maybe I need to explain what's meant by the heart. Some of you may not get it when I speak of the heart, and I'm using it just as Jesus did in chapter 5, verse number 8. He said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's the inner being of a person. It's not the physical organ that pumps your blood. It's the thing that controls your entire life. It's your mind, it's your emotions, your will. All of that has been transformed from what it was before you were saved. But you might ask, well, isn't your head where your mind is? Well, of course it is. But whenever you say that you feel something, when something has caused you to respond, when there's something that bothers you or you get, as we call it, convicted about things, where do you feel that? You feel it down in here, don't you? I mean, it's a gut reaction. We say that all the time. I feel this in my gut. For instance, if you love someone and you miss that person, where do you feel the agony of missing that person? Do you say, well, I have a headache? Well, no. You, you, you call your sweetheart on the phone and say, honey, you're giving me a headache. She probably would never talk to you again. No, you, you feel that in your gut, down, down inside. Your insides are torn out. And that's really what it means to have a heart knowledge instead of a head knowledge. So the problem then is when that you first heard the gospel message that the reception of it was deficient. You see, in order for a person to really receive the gospel of Christ, it's to, to, to actually be more than what just you listen to, more than just hearing the preaching, more than just reading from books or even from the Bible. There has to be more. For in order for it to be more, the Holy Spirit has to be at work in your soul. You see, there was a time, there should have been a time, if you say that you were saved, when the gospel that you hear with your ears has actually penetrated down in your soul. So all at once, when that gospel message is received, you feel your unworthiness. You know that God is working in you to change your desires. You know that God is working to overcome that sin in your life. He's working to change your focus. He shows you that you're helpless. And he's breaking you down so that there is nothing else that matters in your life but surrendering yourself to him, giving everything to him. Now that's something that's plainly experienced, although it may not be felt emotionally. You may not bow down or break down and cry. There may not be tears associated with it. There may not be extreme joy and happiness that shows outwardly by any kind of emotion. It's not a physical display. There may be some that accompany it with some people, but that's not the thing. It's what happens on the inside. It's like a blind man receiving his sight. See, a blind man maybe have the, have the beauty of a flower described to him But when he finally receives his sight, he realizes there was no way that you could have explained what that's like. There's no way that you could give a description of it. And this is when a person, when his heart is opened up to the gospel like it never has been before. And that's when he sees the Lamb of God as his living Redeemer. 
Jesus stated it another way in Matthew chapter 13. He said, again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see, when the reception is right, there's a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I wonder sometimes, where is the focus of people that say that they're saved? How can you go on day after day doing things like texting and tweeting and posting evil thoughts instead of righteousness? You know what Jesus said about that? Oh, generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth evil things. So how do you know that your deception of the gospel is deficient? What comes out of your heart? And if evil comes from it, if your speech is not clean, if your thoughts are not pure, if you're not affected by your sin, then you need to very seriously consider Jesus' words. What did he say to the people? Why do you call me Lord? And you do not the things which, you, which I say. Why don't you do the will of the Father? Paul says another way in Second Corinthians. He says, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a difference? The light of the glory of God has shone into you. And that's when the glory of God... It's really like being drawn by an irresistible force of gravity. You're drawn to the light of God like a tractor beam. You've been called out of darkness in the light. And if you didn't get that when you were saved then, or said that you were saved, then the reception is deficient. You obtained knowledge is what you got. You ascended to the facts. You, you said it's all true, but you never were actually transformed by it. Now, there's a second problem that keeps what's in your head from going to your heart, and that is deficient repentance. Now, of all the characters that you ever learned about in the Bible, who do you think is the worst one? I mean, there's, uh, there's one who lives in infamy. I mean, at the very mention of his name, it conjures up disgust. And that person was so bad and he committed a crime that was so heinous that no one in the world ever would even give his child that person's name, whether they're a Christian or a non-Christian. Who was that? That was Judas, exactly. Turn your Bibles over a few pages in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. In the 26th chapter, just before what we'll read here, Peter had denied the Lord. Three times Peter denied him, even to the point of cursing. He became angry that anyone would even suggest that he'd been following Jesus. Why don't people refuse to name their children Peter? Well, I think we know because Peter repented. He repented of denying Jesus. After Jesus was crucified, Peter became the most vocal of all the disciples. He and John were often teamed up to preach together. But when you read about that, it's always Peter the one that's emphasized... And that's although John, there is no record of John ever denying the Lord. Look at Judas. Did he also repent? Look at verse number 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. 
And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Did Judas confess his sin? Yes, he did. Did he hate what he had done? Yes. Was he sorry about it? Yes. Do you think that if he had not hanged himself that he would ever have done anything like this again? Probably not. Then what's the difference between Peter and Judas? Both of them did terrible things. Both of them denied the Lord. And in a sense, both of them betrayed him. But why is Peter not as despicable as Judas? And that's a good question to ask yourself. Is it possible to repent but not repent in the right way? Let me show you what I mean. Could it be that you heard the preacher preaching a scary message on hell? And he made hell just as vivid as he could possibly make it. And you said, no, I don't want to die and go to hell. I I would never want that to happen to me, so I give up. I repent. I don't want to go to hell. Can you repent and still go to hell? You certainly can if your repentance is deficient. You see, if you don't want to go to hell simply because you don't want to be punished, then your repentance is defective. A heart that's been changed by God turns into weeping and mourning because of sin. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are they that mourn. Those beatitudes in the beginning of this sermon are extremely important. You see, a person doesn't have saving repentance if he's just simply worried about consequences. He stays out of sin and he repents of sin because he knows that sin has bad consequences. But the thing that he's not concerned about is that sin is a violation of God's law. He never arrived at his repentance because he saw the holiness of God was offended. He doesn't see himself as a rebel against God. and He doesn't see that God deserves all glory. The reason for his repentance is always centered in him. It's not in God. You see why that kind of person can actually work in the church? That kind of person can teach Sunday school. That kind of person can attend Bible studies. He can do all those things. He can be unholy in his speech, unholy on Friday and Saturday night, unholy in all of his social networking. Why? Because they've never seen sin as God sees sin. They're unaffected by the holiness of God. But what do you see? And what do they see? Well, they they do hate some sins. They hate the really big ones. They despise sin when it comes to their neighborhood in the form of gang. They despise sin when somebody comes and steals something from them. They hate things like abortion. They wouldn't get close to a homosexual. They're church-going people. They hate big sins. But the ones that they commit... The ones that are trivial and perhaps even secret, they aren't bothered by that in the least. And thus the problem you have of other Christians that are new to the faith because they picked out somebody in the church that they thought was a good Christian. And they started to follow that person around and they looked at their life and they thought that they were really somebody that they could emulate, but they found out something about them. They saw that in their private life, they weren't at all what they claimed to be in church. 
And so they got discouraged by that, and many new converts fall by the wayside. And I think the problem with a lot of church people, church members that are like that, is they have deficient repentance. They never did see sin as God sees sin. See, repentance is defective when it doesn't make you hate all sin. Now, I've never met a perfect Christian. I never will. You never had a perfect pastor. You never will. Jesus demands perfection. And we know that as long as we're in this life, in this sinful body, we're never going to reach it. But those that have received his righteousness, although they fail in the flesh, they still do maintain an attitude about sin. They understand the holiness of God. You can't continue to live in sin. You can't fail to be broken by your sin. And at the same time, call yourself one of his. It never works that way. And the reason that it doesn't is because God's people have been changed. The knowledge has moved from their head down into their heart where it counts. Their inner being has actually been awakened to God's holiness. Well, that leads me to one other area of deficiency. Thirdly, is deficiency or deficient resolve. A deficiency in the determination to obey God. Now, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 12 and verse number 28. This is one of the stories of the many attempts to trick Jesus and to trip him up in his doctrine so that they could accuse him. They could say, well, you're not correctly teaching the law and the prophets. I'm going to read a few verses here and... Some of them are very familiar to you because we refer to them often. Mark chapter 12, verse number 28. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any question. We had a discussion about this portion of Scripture in Sunday morning forum class a few weeks ago. Was this scribe an honest seeker? Was he really on the verge of the kingdom of God? Was he ready to confess Christ? Well, if you read the same account over in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find that he was not. In fact, he was a part of this plot. He was a scribe. Matthew actually describes him as a lawyer. And that's the only time in the entire book of Matthew that he ever used that term for a scribe. He, he said he, is, he was a lawyer. So what, what is going on here is that he is one of the top-notch scribes. He is a law expert. And he was shoved out there into the middle of what was going on with the intention that he was going to bring Jesus down. I mean, he's, he's the guy that's the expert here, and he's better than all the rest. And if anybody can trip up Jesus, this is the guy that can do it. Well, we notice the truth that he states in verse number 33. 
And Jesus commended him for that. See, he knew some truth. But the problem was, even though knowing the truth, he never made a personal application of it. He repeated, in essence, what Jesus said in verses 30 and 31, and he added to it. He said, loving God with all your heart and understanding and soul and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself, he said, that is greater than all offerings and sacrifices that you can make. In other words, he acknowledged that above all, God wants obedience. Above all, God wants obedience. And you know what his reference is? He's going back to the Old Testament. He's recalling this story of King Saul. King Saul was commanded to destroy the Amalekites and to destroy that king and to destroy all of the livestock. But Saul had a better idea. Saul decided to save the king alive and he decided that he was going to save all the animals and make sacrifices out of them to God. At least that's what he said. He said that was his plan. But do you remember the prophet Samuel came and he told Saul, he said, he chastised him and he said, there is no substitute for strict obedience to God. And he said, Saul, because of your sin, God will take the kingdom away from you. Now, I want you to notice something as we close this part of the message today. A person who is not obedient to God cannot be a child of God. You may have made a profession. You may have repented of your sins, at least in the way that you think that you should repent. You may put up a good defense of your faith by going to church. You can come, you can sing, you can teach, you can work, you can do all sorts of things. But according to God's word, if you don't obey, all of that's useless. It doesn't prove that you have a true profession. Now Hebrews makes a statement, folks, that you will never want to forget. Anybody who walked, who trusts an aisle that you walked in, trusts the card that you signed, trusts the water you've been baptized in, trusts the many years of service that you've given to church, you need to remember this reference. Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Though he were a son, speaking of Jesus, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. He is the author of eternal salvation to all that obey him. John Gill writes, Christ is not the author of salvation to all men. All men do not obey him. All those whom Christ saves, he brings them to obedience to himself. Now, if you have not resolved to obey God, you have no proof of salvation. Where do you gain your assurance from that you actually know God if you don't obey him? Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones has an interesting comment on this. He says that the greatest insult that you can ever make against Christ is is to say, Lord, Lord, and then to disobey him. Now, some of you are busy, you're active, You say all the right things, you're here at church today. But I want you to listen to this. What can be a greater insult than to say, Lord, Lord, fervently, to be busy and active and yet withhold true allegiance and submission from him, to insist upon retaining control of our own lives and to allow our own opinions and arguments rather than those of Scripture to control what we do and how we do it. The greatest insult to the Lord is a will that is not completely and entirely surrendered. And whatever else we may do, however great our offerings and sacrifices, however wonderful our works in his name, it will avail us nothing. 
If we believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God and that he came into this world and went to the cross of Calvary and died for our sins and rose again in order to justify us and to give us life anew and prepare us for heaven, if you really believe that, there is only one inevitable deduction, namely that he is entitled to the whole of our lives, everything without limit whatsoever. See, there's a real danger that a false prophet may deceive you, but there is no deception like self-deception. It is actually possible for you to sit in the pew today and be as far away from God as was Judas. Think about him. How close was he to Jesus? He ate with him, walked with him, he preached the gospel, he said all the right things, but he ended up in hell. And Jesus has the same warning for you. It is a fervent, burning proposition. Why do you call him Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things he says? You're not going to give an account to me. You'll stand before God. And friends, that comes next week. Are you willing to examine your faith right now? Because the righteous judge will examine it later. Read a little bit ahead. Read read down to the end of the chapter, and then you need to be sure that your faith is built upon the right foundation. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. It is a sobering reminder that we need to very, very closely examine our hearts. Do we really know you? And if we do, it will show up and the things that we do every single day. Salvation is not in being here for church today. It's not in works that we've done around here. It's not the fellowships that we have. True salvation is having this down in the heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would show people today that what comes out of their hearts is not pure and righteous and holy, and they have no desire to follow you as they should, then they are not Christians. A true child of God has a changed heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would show that to people today. For those who claim to be Christians but have been acting another way, at least do this. Well, we pray that they would repent of that sin and they would come back and they would honor you with all of their lives. We justly can do no other because of what you've done for us. Lord, we pray that you bless anyone who here, who's here today who doesn't know you as Savior. There are consequences. There is a hell that is real, that is burning, and it will consume everyone who does not believe in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Speak to hearts today. We ask you in the name of Jesus. Amen.